Welcome to Mainly History, the podcast about mostly Maine and mainly history. I'm your host, Ian Saxine. The Pine Tree State is nowhere near the Caribbean, but coastal Maine, along with the rest of New England and the Maritimes, had its share of piracy during the Age of Sail. True, Yo-Ho-Ho and a bottle of Allen's doesn't have the same ring to it, but bear with me. As part of an increasingly interconnected Atlantic world, the colonists in Maine and the surrounding region who made a living from the sea both suffered from and participated in piracy. You probably expect that real pirates differed from their portrayal in literature and on the screen. But you might be surprised how quickly they captured the popular imagination, even in their own time. In this episode, I'll be discussing both the reality and the creation of the myth with a seasoned scholar of piracy, while avoiding the use of words like swashbuckling and lubber, and throwing gratuitous nautical expressions overboard. I'll also stay clear of the treacherous puns off to starboard. The contents of this episode are 100% original, unpirated material. So let's do this. My guest today is Dr. Jamie Goodall, staff historian at the U.S. Army Center for Military History in Washington, D.C. Jamie, welcome to Mainly History. Thank you for having me. Great to have you with us. Specifically, what aspect of pirate history do you specialize in? So I primarily specialize on uh, terms of pirates of the Caribbean, uh, sort of the broader Atlantic world. So. I deal with piracy in the Americas sort of broadly. And my emphasis is on the economic and sociocultural impacts of piracy, particularly on islands that were routinely disrupted by frequent imperial warfare. So I look at how pirates positively and negatively impacted those islands. In particular, I'm really interested in the types of goods and services that pirates brought to islands that might not otherwise have made it to those islands. So that's sort of the main area of specialization. Oh, interesting. So you're talking like pirates facilitating the economies of, say, Barbados and Bermuda and Jamaica and all the rest. Yes, absolutely. Oh, okay. You, if I understand correctly, you've also written about pirates as fashion trendsetters, yes? Something like that, yeah. This strikes me as, it sounds familiar, right? I mean, there are people who idolize their idea of mafiosos, right? And things like that. Mm -hmm. And so, but for, uh, for the subjects that you study, what aspects of, of pirate life ended up being culturally imitated or admired in their own time? Um, I think that the ways in which pirates operated in terms of being sort of usurpers of authority in many cases. I think that that was a really romantic ideal for a lot of people. And particularly for lower class individuals, they kind of saw themselves in the pirates and what they were doing. As far as 
physical attributes of pirates, um, they're really dressing much like any other 17th or 18th century sailor would. Blouses, some basic pants. They typically didn't wear shoes on board ships just because it was better for them to grip the deck with their feet just because of how wet it would be. And I can imagine that, you know, children hearing about pirate stories because there were contemporaries who wrote books about these individuals. Um, I could see children imitating pirates. And I, I like to imagine children out there dressing up as if they were a sailor trying to become a pirate. Have you encountered evidence of young people, for example, reading the supposedly Daniel Defoe authored book about the most notorious pirates or stories of them in the in the sort of uh, the penny press and getting excited about certain aspects? Oh, absolutely. Um, Captain Charles Johnson, the pseudonym, um, his book, A General History of Pirates, was a bestseller at the time. And so a lot of people from a lot of different classes were reading his work and getting a sense of what these pirates that they were reading about in newspapers might really be like, even though, of course, we know he sensationalized a lot of information because he, you know, is relying on secondhand accounts. Uh, he's also relying on what he reads in the newspaper, trial depositions and those sorts of things. I definitely think that he had a quite broad reach with his work. So as a historian of pirates, you primarily focus on an era that many have called the golden age of piracy. What exactly does that term refer to in terms of when this was and where it was? So the golden age of piracy is an era from about 1650 to 1730-ish. This is when piracy was really at its height in the Atlantic world. Now, I argue that piracy actually existed a little bit longer than that in the Atlantic world. But what we really see is, you know, from this golden age, around 1730, you see a shift towards the Indian Ocean as a primary location of operations. So the golden age really is specific to that Atlantic world phenomenon between 1650 and 1730. Okay, great. And so this is the era that gave us names that you know non-specialists might be familiar with edward teach aka blackbeard uh, captain morgan and yes that is the time period that they're okay. operating in okay we are of course the mainly history podcast and maine and new england are not generally associated with piracy but we did have it for uh, for audience members who may be unaware of this uh, could you point them to any particularly noteworthy pirates or, or episodes of piracy that this region lays claim to. Yeah, um, the first pirate known to operate off the coast of Maine, um, and he's probably perhaps the best well-known of them, was an Englishman named Dixie Bull. What we know about him is that he was born sometime in the early 1600s in eastern England, and he sailed up and down the coast of New England, where he initially would trade English knives and beads for fur, but at one point his ship was robbed of all its valuable merchandise when he was docked. And when he was unable to recover his property through legal means, he decided to seek revenge and turn to piracy. And he became known for his plundering of small settlements along the Maine coast. The other pirate most often connected with Maine and sort of the New England area as a whole is Black Sam Bellamy, who was captain of the Witta, which operated in the early 18th century. 
he had a relatively short career, but it was very successful. He was able to capture about 53 ships during that time. Uh, and he has the distinction of being known as perhaps the wealthiest pirate in recorded history. In April of 1717, just a couple months after taking command of the Witta, he and his crew were on their way to Richmond Island off the coast of southern Maine. But for some reason, the ship diverted to Cape Cod, where they got caught in a storm, and the ship eventually broke in two, and the entire crew was lost. So those are two prominent historical examples of piracy in the region of Maine and New England. Somebody recently found the wreck of the widow, right, and brought it up, and it was it was a, a feature in a bunch of traveling exhibitions in the yes. recent yes, future past, wasn't it? Uh, mm-hmm. Like I think it's it's like the most detailed or best preserved pirate wreck that anybody knows of. Yes, it is. Uh, potentially, they're still determining whether or not they've found the Queen Anne's Revenge, which might give the Witta a run for its money, but um, Queen Anne's definitely... Revenge being Blackbeard's ship, right? Yes. All yes. right. I still got my pirate trivia from my youth. Okay. <laughs> so to maybe help us think about perhaps some regional variations in, uh, in the kinds of activities different pirates were undertaking, I was wondering, since Maine and New England are, are, are less well-known for their piracy, and usually it's the, the Caribbean that gets so much action, if there was a dramatic franchise called Pirates of the Bay of Fundy instead <laughs> of Pirates of the Caribbean, what sort of major changes would you make? How would you, how would you direct this? Um, Honestly, I wouldn't make many changes at all. Um, In the research that I did for my book, Pirates of the Chesapeake Bay, I found that while there's some regional variation, in reality, they're all operating sort of very similarly in that they're commerce raiders and they're using small maneuverable ships that can easily get in and out of inlets and islets and through rivers so that they can evade capture. They're all seizing the same types of goods. Of course, the regional difference being in the Chesapeake, a lot of times they are seizing tobacco casks um, because that was the primary commodity coming out of the Chesapeake. But they're seizing whatever commodities they can get their hands on that they can then turn around and sell for profit. So regionally, there's some minor differences, but overall, I think they're all operating fairly similarly. So it wouldn't have had, for example, Captain Jack Sparrow plundering a bunch of cod fishing ships and then just trying to sail around and unload this cod like they would have targeted other, other sort of commerce in the area? I mean, if, if the fish was all they could get their hands on, they certainly would have. <laughs> oh, I never, yeah, I wasn't, I, I hadn't thought about the pirates targeting cod fleas just because it seems like such a bulk kind of pain in the butt product to steal from people and then try and unload yeah. <laughs> but I guess thieves are going to thieves are going to thieve. Generally, what kinds of people turned pirate during this era that you study? Generally, we're talking about um, your average sailor uh, on a merchant vessel or somebody who was disaffected with the Royal Navy. So you're talking primarily sort of lower to middling class individuals. Of course, you did have the rare rich individual get involved, Stead Bonnet being a prime example of that. Many of the privateers that we're very familiar with, like uh, Sir Henry Morgan, Sir Francis Drake, those individuals also came from a little bit more money because privateering required that you come up with your own ship. But primarily from the lower rungs of society is where you're going to see pirates coming from. Okay. That makes sense, since for all of the 
short-term enjoyment for people who turn pirate, their average life expectancy was, if everything I've read, you know, still sticks with me, uh, was pretty short. It was. And to be honest, most pirates only ever went on maybe one or two ventures before they quit the business, so to speak. We don't tend to think about this, but pirates had more often than not had families, they had wives. So they had something worth living for and they were taking to piracy simply to provide for their families. Oh, that's interesting because one of the more popular treatments of, of pirates. And so maybe you could, you could correct this or something. I'm not trying to, to start fights, but Marcus Redeker's book, Villains of All Nations, really made a splash, sorry for nautical puns or whatever, <laughs> talking about pirates as these almost sort of nihilistic, death-embracing rebels against the establishment who, you know, they flew these banners with skulls and hourglasses on them and indicating that these people knew that they didn't have long to live if they chose this life, but it was better, so they were going to do it anyway. And so you're presenting them, though, as, as more often, or, or at least some of the time, interested in supporting families and friends. Yeah, I mean, I think there's probably a good mix of individuals. You definitely had your single men who were out for adventure, who, you know, were, were going to die trying to make it rich. Uh, but Daphne Giancopoulos actually came out with a book about pirate families, which I found really fascinating. And I hadn't really thought about it uh, much, but in my research, I had come across a petition of pirate wives who were petitioning the crown to release their husbands and family members. Uh, there were about 40 of these women who signed this petition. So it wasn't a one-off, you know, that there, there was a significant number of women. And even the most famous uh, of men, like Captain Kidd, he was married to Sarah Bradley Cox Ort Kidd. She was married many times. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I would argue that while there are certainly some who are rebels without a cause, there were just as many who were family men. Interesting. I'm always amazed by how many different scholars put their own spin on this golden age of piracy, where it, see, it strikes me as something of almost a Rorschach test for some scholars where people come along and they're really interested in, for example, you know, Marxist theory, and they'll say, ah, yes, the pirates were class rebels. And then there was this uh, there was a work that came out a couple decades ago by like radical lesbians in Germany or something that were arguing for these female pirates from this extremely uh, theoretical perspective. And then, of course, my, my other, perhaps my personal favorite title is Barry Berg's Sodomy and the Pirate Tradition, which argued that because pirates were more sexually tolerant, among men at least, of same-sex attraction, that sailors who had same-sex attraction were more likely to choose this life of piracy. Uh, and that this was this sort of much more socially open and tolerant era of floating ships full of gay pirates in the Caribbean. Yeah, that makes me think of Hans Turley's book, Rum, Sodomy, and the Lash, Piracy, Sexuality, and Masculine Identity. So you can definitely see scholars' interests coming to the forefront when looking at piracy. And I, I find the different takes on piracy to be really interesting because piracy was a very complex undertaking and the individuals involved were complex human beings. And so having these various facets of their lives taken apart is really cool. 
So on that note, I have some rapid fire, very shallow questions for you that nevertheless, <laughs> I think are very pertinent for this. So first would be, what to you as a, as a pirate specialist is the most irritating misconception that most people have about pirates? I think I, I always point to the idea that pirates talked differently for some reason, that they had their own lingo and, and they had their own accents, when in reality, they're really speaking like any other 17th or 18th century individual, whether that be an Englishman. Uh, we're talking also about French, Dutch, Spanish individuals. So they're, of course, speaking in their own language and dialects. Um, so that, to me, is the most annoying pirate misconception, because it's the one thing people always start with when they talk to me is with R or ask me what my favorite pirate joke is regarding the way they speak. Ah, uh, yes. They never said shiver me timbers? Probably not. That's most likely a Robert Louis Stevenson uh, <sighs> creation. Yeah, I know um, Treasure Island is foundational for, for how English speakers Im Im imagine pirates. And so that was a Robert Louis Stevenson one. It's possible, yeah. What about Avast? Again, they may have said it, but so would have so would any 18th century sailor. You know, it it wouldn't have been any different. Fair. Okay. Okay. Moving from that, then, in terms of things people wouldn't expect, so pirates were were thieves. They carried around a lot of weapons and things with them. What is the most surprising pirate weapon that you have ever read evidence about? So I think most people are fairly familiar with pistols and the cutlasses. But one of the weapons that pirates had in their possession that I always just found really interesting is called a blunderbuss. It's a firearm with a short, large caliber barrel, which is sort of flared at the muzzle and is used with shot and other sorts of projectiles. And so it was really, it's such an interesting looking weapon. And I imagine the damage that it did was quite extensive. Yeah, those things were basically just like big shotguns, right? Where it was, right. the whole point is they just sort of spew out projectiles everywhere. Yeah. Uh, weirdly enough, in, in like artistic renderings, you, most people, if they saw one, associate them with the Plymouth colonists, the so-called pilgrims and the first Thanksgiving. And I have no idea why people decided that the pilgrims had blunderbusses. But like, <laughs> it's... It's very odd. And I think it was like, yeah, stagecoach drivers and people who had to worry about, well, you know, getting mugged. Uh, it was really good if you didn't know how to shoot. That would make sense since pirates were primarily thieves anyway and didn't really want to fight. They just wanted to steal things. Yeah, absolutely. Which is something that my students were always disappointed by. Whenever I taught <laughs> my pirates classes and we'd watch pirate movies and whatnot, the thing I had to tell them is like, sorry, pirates probably weren't good at sword fighting. Oh, because no. Why would you learn? That makes no sense. <laughs> no sense. So I'm sure you have strong opinions about this. Who is the pirate who is the most obscure, who deserves attention to be studied as a, a fascinating or noteworthy pirate? I think probably the most underrated pirate I can think of is, I'm going to totally butcher her name, but uh, is... Chang Sao or Ching Shi, uh, depending on which version you're using, who was a Chinese pirate leader who terrorized the China Seas during the period of the uh, Qing Dynasty in the early 19th century. She's sort of fictionalized in the parts of the Caribbean. Um, I remember her, yes. Yes. 
but I would say that, I mean, she commanded over 300 junks, which are traditional Chinese sailing ships that were manned by anywhere from 20 to 70,000 pirates. And her pirates consisted of men and women. So um, I really think that she's such a fascinating character that doesn't, you know, when we think of female pirates, we automatically go the Atlantic world and think Anne, Bonnie, and Mary Reed. But Ching Shi really deserves some, some recognition. Yeah, if sheer numbers, she might have been the most influential pirate leader of all time. Oh, yeah. That, that's a really good one. So would that be, in your mind, the most fitting pirate event to be the subject of the next major on-screen drama that dramatized pirate life? Yeah, I mean, I would love to see a full-length feature on her. And it's possible that there is in... China, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm mm -hmm. not as familiar with Chinese filmography, so it's possible it's been done and I just haven't seen it. I would say probably the other pirate adventure that I'd really want to see on the silver screen would be when Captain Henry Avery and his men seized the Ganji Savai, which was the Mughal Emperor Aurangzeb's treasure ship. And the fact that you had Avery's ship, which was a 46-gun ship, versus the Ganji Savai, which was equipped to hold upwards of 800 guns. Oh, the wow. fact that he took a gamble that it wouldn't be carrying that many guns in order to carry enough treasure was a really risky gamble. And I think that it makes for good action adventure. Yeah. Now I would think that maybe for a different genre, Steed Bonnet would make for perhaps the most sitcom-worthy pirate, I'm thinking, <laughs> uh, in terms of the gentleman who doesn't know how to sail and just sort of like buys himself a ship and crew and just sort of doesn't he, he basically hires Blackbeard to run his ship for him or something. And, and he basically just ends up as this kind of gentleman prisoner of his own, of his own crew. Oh, essentially. Yeah. So he was tired <laughs> of his wealthy lifestyle. He was tired of his wife and children. So he decided to buy a ship, hire a crew and go pirating. And fortunately for him, he, you know, met up with Blackbeard and Blackbeard was willing to take him on as an accomplice for a little while. That was until Blackbeard realized just how inept Stead Bonnet was. Um, oh, it's Stead, he, not Steed. I've learned it, something. Either way. Either oh, way. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> no, I, I was, I'm happy to be corrected. Nobody, I hadn't heard anybody use his name outside of a class I taught. And so they were just responding to what I, what I said. Yeah, I've heard it both ways. So I just, you know, either one yeah. works for me. Okay. Steed's story is great, and also the way it intersects with Blackbeard, who was relatively unusual as far as Golden Age pirate captains went, in terms of his reputation for actually terrorizing and ruling over his crew uh, in a way with way more authority than the average pirate captain had. Uh, yeah. I remember reading a story about him where there was an account where he was playing cards with people, uh, and they were you know, at this card table, and he carried this sash full of, you know, pistols on him. He pulled out a pistol under the table and just blew the kneecap off of one of the guys who was sitting there for no reason other than to make a point that, like, you don't mess with Blackbeard the pirate. Yeah. <laughs> so with him being the exception, though, Golden Age pirate crews were relatively democratic, correct? Yeah, I would say that that's the one thing that comes out of Marcus Redeker's work that's really good is that for the most part, they were rather egalitarian in nature and 
They voted on who the captain would be at any given point. They voted on where they would sail. They voted on what ships they would attack. According to some of the pirate codes that we have left, that they had insurance policies in case they were injured so that they and their families would be taken care of. So yeah, fairly democratic in many ways. But this is not to say that all were because uh, pirates were very involved in the transatlantic trade of enslaved peoples. So they're not as egalitarian or as democratic as we might think based on works like Redeker's. But I'm yeah, glad I would you argue- brought that up because there has been controversy over the extent to which pirates were either implicated in the slave trade or would occasionally have, you know, multiracial crews and be, you know, somewhat less racist than say other English speakers in the in the early 18th century. Yeah. Is the answer that it depended on the ship and that there were very diverse kind of crews with pirates of color and then other other pirate ships just took part in the slave trade? Yeah, I mean, definitely dependent on the ship because we have evidence of multiracial crews. To what degree pirates of color had freedom on board those ships is debatable, but we do have evidence of multiracial crews, but we also have strong evidence of pirates' direct engagement in the transatlantic trade of enslaved peoples. I'm glad you brought up this question of evidence because pirates are as you well know, but the audience might not, notoriously difficult to study because so many pirates were illiterate and left us such sparse written sources. For the scholars of piracy such as yourself, what are your go-to sources of information on this subject, your treasure troves, if you will? Right. I mean, and, and a pirate's not going to leave a paper trail because plausible deniability is what's going to get you out of the hangman's noose. So for me, many of the records that I use come from government officials. So the colonial office records, for example, communications between government officials and merchants, um, merchant records themselves, and also pirate depositions and trial transcripts. Those are really wonderful documents to get a sense of what was going on on board these ships. To your mind, what is the best pirate movie that did not involve Muppets. Because let's be honest, whenever there's a Muppet version of a story, immediately the Muppet movie is kind of like a category of its own in terms of greatness. (laughs) The Muppets are amazing. (laughs) It's true. So the best non-Muppet pirate movie in your mind. I mean, I'm not gonna lie. I really enjoyed the Pirates of the Caribbean series. I thought that they did a really great job blending fact and fiction and bringing in the supernatural as well. Um, I thought it was a lot of fun. Hmm. And do you have any recommendations that are perhaps lesser known? Hmm. Well, uh, I don't know the name of it, but there's an animated film on pirates on Netflix right now that my husband just watched. He said it was very funny, um, sort of a lighthearted little romp, if you will. So I would say if you if you have Netflix, search pirates and see if you can find that animated hmm. film. Okay. Uh, do you have strong opinions about Cutthroat Island, the really <laughs> schlocky 90s movie? It's so terrible, but you know what? I enjoyed it. <laughs> I, I will say I enjoyed it. That is like way up there for me on like, you know, sort of water world levels of, <laughs> of just, you know, cinematic brilliance, clearly. What about, have you seen the version of Treasure Island 
starring a young Christian Bale as Jim Hawkins and Charlton Heston as Long John Silver. I have not. I've seen so many renditions of Treasure Island, it's tough to keep track of them, but that one does not sound like one I've seen. Highly recommend it for the best Treasure Island version, comma, non-Muppet category. The soundtrack is by The Chieftains, who are this amazing Irish band. It came out in like 1990. It's got Christopher Lee, uh, Oliver Reed, this amazing cast. And it's, it's one of the only movie versions of a classic book I've ever seen that was better than the book. Oh, nice. It's that good. It's that good. And it is on Amazon Prime now. Oh, perfect. Yeah, I, I make my students watch it for pirate class. Because, of course, if you're going to understand what people expect of pirates today, I'm sorry, of Golden Age pirates today, you have to be familiar with Robert Louis Stevenson. Oh, absolutely. Who, Classic. Who invented, who invented the trope, yeah. So were there any older pirate tropes, I'm curious, flipping this around, uh, were there, was there anything about pirates that people really noted at the time during the golden age of piracy that gets lost in the modern memories of pirates? You know, something that, for example, Treasure Island ignored, and yet people talking in the, in the early 18th century said, oh yeah, like pirates are, are always known for doing such and such a thing. Um, I mean, I don't think so. I think the stereotype that we have of pirates is pretty much the stereotype they had at the time as well because of the sensationalized stories of Captain Charles Johnson and, and later Howard Pyle. So I, I oh, don't the think painter. That, yes. Yeah, okay. Um, so I don't think that there's anything that's sort of lost as far as that goes. Studying a subject as popular as piracy, do you find it challenging in some way where you maybe aren't taken as seriously because you are studying something with so much popular cachet? Yeah, definitely. I feel like a lot of times people think it's just a hobby of mine as opposed to a serious historical inquiry. The other thing that I run into is people think they know a lot about pirates. And so I'm frequently confronted with people who want to correct me um, because it's not like what they were told or it's not like what somebody else told them. So yeah, it's definitely a little frustrating, but I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I, I love what I study and it's brought me a lot of really great opportunities and I've met a lot of really cool people along the way. That's great. Are there any new displays on the East Coast for our wide ranging listeners, of course, that you think people should look into once they're able to travel again? I would say if you ever get a chance to come out to Baltimore, the Pride of Baltimore 2, which is a replica privateering ship, is a really fascinating ship to, to get to be on and learn about. And so I would say come, come on down to Baltimore and check that out. Okay. okay. What highbrow work of pirate history, besides your own, is your current favorite? Uh, I would say my favorite work on piracy, hands down, is Mark Hanna's Pirate Nests. His work is so thoroughly researched. It's well-written. It made all the same arguments that I was making in my dissertation, and his book wasn't out yet, and so now I'm sort of like, oh, well, (laughs) (laughs) his book came out now. But um, no, his book is absolutely brilliant. I haven't read that one. I'll have to check it out. Oh, it's, it's a big one, but it's worth it. As we wrap up, what is something you're working on or have recently published that our audience should check out? Well, I've got a couple of things to mention. The first uh, is my book that came out in February, Pirates of the Chesapeake Bay from the Colonial Era to the Oyster Wars, 
which you can get on Amazon through IndieBound.org or Barnes and Noble, uh, I believe carries it as well. But right now what I'm working on is a bookazine for National Geographic that will be out in April of 2021 on pirates and shipwrecks. And I'm also working on a follow-up sort of to Pirates of the Chesapeake Bay, looking at Pirates of the Mid-Atlantic. So looking at New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Delaware. When can we expect the National Geographic work to be out? Uh, it should be out April 2021. Oh, nice. As pro- yeah, as long as production goes well. Yeah, as long as production goes well and, and I get the edits to my editors on time, everything should be good. Awesome. And what is something that somebody else is working on that you would like to recommend? Well, it's something that's already out, but it's something that I think people should take a look at. And that's Robin Mitchell's Venus Noir, Black Women and Colonial Fantasies in 19th Century France. It's way outside of my wheelhouse, but when I got it, I couldn't put it down. Ooh, I always love reading widely like that. So that's great. Thanks for the recommendation. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for stopping by the show. I would like to point out that we were very sort of countercultural here. We did not try and schedule you for International Talk Like a Pirate Day. Very much, very much going against the grain here. And <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much. That's our show. Thanks for listening. A special shout out to our overseas listeners, especially the good people in the Czech Republic. For links to the books mentioned in today's episode, be sure to follow us on Twitter at Mainly History. If you like what you heard, please leave a five-star rating or review on your podcast provider. Join us next time as we discuss how workers and their families in Maine's mill towns experienced and still remember the fall of the state's once mighty paper industry. Michael Hillard, economist and labor historian at the University of Southern Maine, spent almost two decades speaking with residents of these communities across the state. What lessons did they take from the industry's collapse? And how does their story change how we think about industry, work, and the global economy in the 21st century? Find out next time on Mainly History.